Well, good morning, Chili Bible. Uh, you may have noticed, I think my mic might be a little hot, Sarah. Um, among the other things that are a little discombobulated around here, I couldn't find the microphone I usually use. <laughs> and uh, like I say, uh, things are a little discombobulated. Uh, That's because we are redoing the flooring in the offices, all of that carpet from 1986 came out this week and, um, and revealed a beautiful uh, flooring underneath. Uh, and that's all going to be covered up with something that really will be beautiful. And uh, that'll be done on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. But in addition to that, we're going to put new trim all the way around the, the, the uh, perimeter of the room. And we need somebody who would love to paint about 200 feet of, um, of wood trim that goes around the bottom of that. So if you're interested in that, see either Dave Danini or Mark Swanson. Uh, those two guys, shoot your hands up if you would so everybody knows who you are. Okay, they're sitting close together, so that, uh, that helps. But they're kind of leading that effort, spearheading that whole thing. Uh, they replaced all of the ceiling tile in the two, uh, two offices out there as well as put in new LED lights. Uh, and so you can see in there now. It's great. Uh, but it also looks cleaner and, and prettier. But anyway, we need some painting done. And then we'll also need about four guys who love to move furniture to help us put stuff back <laughs> where it came out of. Um, I don't know when I'm going to find everything that came out of my office uh, again. I couldn't find my microphone this morning. But we will endeavor to put it all back in any case, and, and then that will help us on the re relocation process, I'm sure. So uh, anyway, if you're interested in that, see Dave, uh, see Mark, and they will help you get that done. Um, also, again, let me say this one more time. If you're a voting member of this church, do not go home after this service is over. Stay here. We need to hear your voice and make sure that we hear your input uh, on this important decision regarding uh, possibly hiring Josh Duran. So uh, today, I get the privilege of opening up God's Word with you. So I'd like you to turn, if you would, to the Gospel of John, uh, to chapter 10. And um, we're going to be in beginning of verse 22. And as you make your way there, let's pray, okay? God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that today is a good day. Today is a day that you have given us to serve you and to praise you and to uh, be known by you and to know you better. And we have the, the tremendous privilege this morning, Father, of worshiping you with one another but also, Father, uh, as part of that, of opening up your word and hearing you speak to us through the word by your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that you would speak to us uh, through your word by your Holy Spirit. May your words come into our minds and down into our hearts and change our lives. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, if, if you are... Uh, following along kind of in the timeline of Jesus' ministry, uh, John starts to, starts to take these big jumps toward the uh, middle of the book 
And you are now about four months from the end of Jesus' earthly ministry before the crucifixion. It's December. Uh, and specifically, it's Hanukkah. Uh, is happening um, in, uh, this is 32 AD, uh, 32 years uh, after the birth of Jesus, approximately, uh, at the Feast of Dedication. They call it the Feast of Dedication in the Gospel of John. We would call it Hanukkah uh, in our world today. It's wintertime, it's December, and Jesus is in Jerusalem for this feast as well. So it's about, it's about three months that have passed from the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem. And if you remember, the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, he healed a man that had been born blind and that caused all kinds of controversy. Uh, in fact, there was this whole discussion back and forth, if you'll remember, right? Are you the blind guy? Yeah, I was the blind guy. No, you can't be the blind guy. Bring in his parents. Uh, was he the blind guy? Yeah, he was the blind guy. Well, how does he see now? Well, Jesus healed him. Well, that can't possibly be. And this is about three months later, and Jesus is back in Jerusalem for Hanukkah. So let's look at what the text says here. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, let me give you a little background on the text here. Tell you what the Feast of Dedication, what Hanukkah is about. In the year 175 A.D., I mean B.C. rather, uh, 175 years before the birth of Jesus approximately, uh, 175 B.C., the nation of Israel was ruled by uh, the empire of Syria. And Syria had uh, developed this empire after Alexander the Great's kingdom fell apart after his death. It split into four directions. And one of them was, was based in Syria. And the ruler at this time was a man uh, named Antiochus. And he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. In other words... Uh, uh, Antiochus, the appearance of God. That's what he called himself. Now, they called him Antiochus Epimanes, which means Antiochus, the crazy one. <laughs> okay. But anyway, uh, Antiochus Ant Epiphanes the fourth, And what he did, he wanted to turn Israel into a Hellenistic or a Greek culture nation. And so what he did was he took over the temple in Jerusalem and he turned the altar dedicated to the living God to an altar dedicated to Zeus and sacrificed pigs on it. Now, if you're a Jew, what's the one most unclean animal? 
a pig, all right? And he turns it not only into, a, into the altar to a pagan god, but he sacrifices pigs on it. He went beyond that, and he, fed, he force-fed all of the priests at the Jerusalem temple pork, and he turned all of the rooms in the temple into brothels. Now, this did not go over real well with the Jews, as you can imagine. In fact, they had a revolt led by a guy named Judas Maccabeus. His name means literally Jude the Hammer. And he was the hammer against the Syrians. And he, in fact, led this whole revolt, uprising against the Syrian Empire, and they were successful. And they threw him out. And Israel was reestablished as an independent nation. Only this time, it was not ruled by descendants of David. It was ruled by descendants of another family that became known as the Hasmonean dynasty. And they ruled until the Romans came in, took them over, and put Herod, who was an Edomite, um, in charge of the whole country. Now, I give you all that as background because when Jude the Hammer threw out the Syrians, what they did was they rededicated the temple. They had to go through this whole process of purification and cleansing that lasted for eight nights. And, and they only had enough of the sacred oil for the temple to last for one night, but somehow, miraculously, they had enough oil that burned in the lamps in the temple for eight nights. And they celebrate this feast called the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, every year since to celebrate the fact that God was with them and he helped them to drive out the Syrians. So now, right at this feast, here's what's happening. You have this guy that is going around through Israel doing these mighty miracles and people are saying he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David. And they are ruled and oppressed by another empire. And it's right at the time we were celebrating the last time we overthrew an empire to reestablish ourselves as an independent nation. And they're following Jesus around in the temple, in Solomon's colonnade. Solomon's colonnade is this place that had all these 45-foot-tall columns roofed in cedar that you could walk under. And it was shaded, and it was beautiful. It was massive. This, is, this was a reconstruction of the thing that Solomon built in his day. So in other words, this is the kingly area of the temple, and here is the guy we think might be the king at the feast dedicated to celebrating the establishment of Israel as a kingdom that threw out an empire and were ruled by an empire. Is this the guy? You hear how this question just crackles with intensity as they're asking? Are you the Christ? Are you, in other words, are you the new and better Jude the Hammer who's going to throw out the Romans and reestablish the nation as a Davidic ruler? Are you the one we've been waiting for? That's what they're asking. And Jesus says, I did tell you, I did answer that question, but you didn't listen. 
you didn't like what I said. My works, meaning my miracles, my teaching, prove that I am the Messiah. And I did them in the Father's name, and they prove my identity. So why don't you listen to what I have said and done? And he gives the answer to his own question. He says, because you, look at verse 26, you are not part of my flock. You aren't, in other words, one of my sheep. Because my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. In other words, he's saying this. What's the answer to their question? Are you the Messiah? He says, yes, but only if you're one of my sheep. Only if you follow me will I be Messiah. And the salvation that he's offering, by the way, is different than what they're thinking. It is not something so prosaic and ordinary as deliverance from the Romans. I mean, that's pretty good, but it's not much at the end of the day to have an earthly kingdom. Earthly kingdoms might come and go. But he says, no, I give eternal life. I give them eternal life. Every one of Jesus' sheep, he says, hears his voice and he knows them. There's a relationship between Jesus, the good shepherd, and the people in his flock. And the word know here is the word for knowing personally and deeply. In other words, this is not the knowledge of Facebook friendships. Amen? I have like 714 Facebook friends or something, something crazy like that, right? How many of those people do you think will, will respond to a text, hey, I'm broke down along the side of the road, bring the wrecker, right? Like three, right? <laughs> okay. Um, this, is, this is deep knowing. This is personal relationship. When Jesus is saying, if you are one of my sheep, I know them. I, they are mine, I know them. I love them. They're connected to me. I know more than their name and their face. They're known to me. And his life, in fact, his knowledge of them is so deep that his life becomes their life. That's how he gives eternal life, is he gives his life to them. And it gets better than that. Think about this. He not only gives them eternal life. Look at this. Look at this phrase right here. You ought to underline and highlight and like put fireworks around this, these words. They will never perish. Never perish. That means if you are known by Jesus... If you are one of his, the member of his flock, you will never die and face God's judgment. Never. You will never die and face God's judgment. What will happen to you if you are a follower of Jesus is that you will someday simply pass from this life into Jesus' own presence and dwell there forever. 
Now, if that happens before Christ's return, your body will be transformed and join you later. The last trumpet. But your spirit, according to the scriptures, goes immediately into the presence of the Savior. Immediately. And in fact, I think it happens in such a way that you don't even actually notice the part where you die. Because you don't really. You just are all of a sudden conscious of the fact that you are in the presence of Jesus. And you are no longer present in your body. You're with Him. And then... He says that we're going to experience that. He's going to give us reassurance that we're going to experience it. And that we, this really is going to happen to this because he says this. Look at this, this verse. This is fantastic. If you're looking for some good news this morning, this is good news. Okay, This is the best news. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand, meaning that once you belong to Jesus, you always, always belong to Jesus. Always belong to Jesus. In other words, once you possess eternal life, you never used to. Well, I had eternal life, but I lost it. Where did you lose it? I don't know. But I, I mislaid it somewhere. I sinned, and then I lost my eternal life. No. You have eternal life and you will never perish and you cannot be snatched out of Jesus' hand. There's no way you can ever be, once you become a member of Jesus' flock, there's no way you can ever be anything else. You always belong to Him. Always. I read this little story, it's kind of a cute story, about a three-year-old boy walking with his mom. And um, she says, she looks down at her son and she says, son, I need you to hold my hand as we're about to cross the street. And the little boy looks up at her and he says, no, you hold my hand. And she's like, son, what's the difference? He goes, well, I'm not as strong as you, and so if it depends on me to hold on to your hand, I might let go. But if you hold my hand, I know I'll be kept secure. Guess which way it goes with Jesus. It's not dependent on us holding on to him, but the fact that he holds on to us. Amen? He holds on to us. And if that's not enough, there's more. There's more. Look at verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one will snatch them out of my father's hand in other words it's not just that jesus holds us holds on to us for eternity we're also kept in jesus flock by god the father's hand as well and since as jesus said he is greater than all things in the universe there is nothing there's nothing that exists that can ever separate us from his love for us. Does that remind you of Romans 8? It should. Where do you think Paul got it from? <laughs> right? He got it from Jesus, who said, there's nothing 
that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in all creation. Because God, the Father, is Lord of all things. And Jesus made all things. And between the Father and the Son is an absolutely irresistible grip that holds on to those who belong to Jesus. There is nothing that can take you away from God's love for you when you belong to Him. And then you get this, you get this amazing announcement in verse 30. This is the boldest proclamation of Jesus' deity out of His own mouth that there is in the book. He says, I and the Father are one. It literally reads, I and the Father are one thing. One thing. In other words, Jesus and the Father are both equally God. This is going to get into a little bit of Trinitarianism here, okay? And if that blows your mind, it should. But here's the idea. There is one and only one being who is God. But within the one being who is God, there are, count them, three persons who are God. And the persons are, are eternally existent and eternally related to one another in a relationship of love. And they all share the same attributes as God, but they do not share the same functions within the Godhead. So, for example, you are indwelt by the Spirit, you are, your sins are paid by Jesus, and you are called into relationship with God by the Father. You pray to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Uh, so, so, our, so the persons of the Godhead are not interchangeable. So in other words, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Spirit is not the Son, and the Spirit is not the Father. Um, but they, they are distinct, but they are not separate. There is one being who is God. And Jesus is saying, there is one God, and I and the Father are both God, because we are both persons of the one triune being. Does that blow your mind? Yes. Okay. All right. Do I understand that fully? No. I can explain it better than I understand it. All right? But one of the things that that means is this, is that God is eternally love. Eternally. You have a monopersonal deity like you have in, in other words, only one person and one God like you have in Islam, then what that means is, is that God doesn't exhibit love to anything until after the creation. Because there's no one else in the universe to whom that God demonstrates love. And so you cannot say in Islam, God is love, you can say that God acts in a loving and a compassionate way. But in, within Christianity, we say God is love. That's what the Bible says. And it says so accurately because God within himself was experiencing relationship of love before the creation. Perfect relationship of love. Which overflows into the creation and the results in the creation of you and I. 
But God is love and eternally has been love. Now, if you don't understand this, it's okay. This is one of these areas of your, of your, your theology and doctrine that's very much like a skeleton. You know, if you're, when you're born, all your bones are soft and you kind of harden into them, right? And as a, as a, if you are, if this is brand new to you, you kind of harden into your orthodoxy, <laughs> right? Uh, but this is what Jesus is trying to tell them. He's encapsulating it in a verse. I'm giving you paragraphs. He says, I and the Father are one. And they do not understand what he says. In fact, it says, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again. In other words, for the second time in three months. (laughs) To stone him, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken? Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated? consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Now, the Jews that are speaking with Jesus don't understand what he means. They don't have a concept of Trinity, uh, even though the Old Testament gives very definite, strong hints of the plurality of persons within God. Let me just give you an example uh, Genesis chapter 1, 26, 27 says, And the Lord said, Let us make man in our own image. All the words are plural. Us, our, our. Right? The word Elohim, which many of you know, literally translates to mighty gods. The word Adonai translates to my masters. These are all names for God in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 48, verse 16, uh, you, you see the servant of Yahweh speaking. The figure we know as Messiah is speaking. And he says, the Lord God has sent me with his spirit. So you got three people that we're talking about. The Lord God has sent me, his servant, with the Spirit. In other words, the Old Testament itself allows for what Jesus is saying. They don't understand that. And And the disciples didn't understand it at first either. But as you reflect on what Jesus says in the New Testament with what the Old Testament says... 
you get something very much like the doctrine of the Trinity and the idea that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all equally God, yet there is one God. Not three gods, one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they don't understand. Uh, they think Jesus is a blasphemer, and so they pick up rocks to put him to death. And Jesus defends himself with a very simple biblical argument. It's called a from the lesser to the greater argument. So in other words, if this lesser thing is true, then this greater thing, based on that same principle, ought to also be true. And he speaks, he cites uh, a, a verse in the Old Testament, Psalm Chapter 86, I mean, chapter 82, verse 6, and it refers to ancient Israel's judges as gods because they were his representatives and they were called to enforce his law. And if that is true, and Jesus says, and the scripture cannot be broken, in other words, you can't separate out of the Bible the things you don't like then it must also be legitimate to call Jesus, whom God set apart and sent into the world, the Son of God. You can call Old Testament judges who are simply men, gods. Then how about the one who came from God from heaven, whom God sent into the world? Can you call him the Son of God? Yes. And he says, and by the way, if you think I'm just puffing myself up here, let's put this argument to the test. Look at what I do. If you can come up with another explanation for what I do, when I do the things that only God can do, then by the way, throw away, right? Get your rocks ready. But there is no good explanation. I mean, this is a guy who earlier in John we have seen do the following things, okay? We've seen him turn big water jars into gallons and gallons of wine. Who can do that? God. Okay, who else can do that? No one. Okay, well, let's, let's take that as evidence. How about this? How about a guy who can walk on the water in a storm? Who can do that? God. Who else? No one. Who can raise a little girl off of her deathbed and instantaneously heal her? God. Who else? No one. Who, who can take a guy who has been crippled in his feet for 38 years and instantaneously with no physical therapy, no transition, no, um, no nerve damage repair, none of that, no muscle atrophy uh, exercises. He's just not walking and then he's walking after 38 years of not walking and heal him in an instant. Who can do that? God can do that. Who else? No one. Who who can take a guy who has never seen anything in his life, smear mud on his eyes, tell him to wash, and send the guy back seeing? Who can do that? God. Who else? No one. So 
Jesus is saying, look at what I do. If you don't believe the claim, believe the works. Because they authenticate the claim. Amen? By the way, next week we're going to get in one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of John. Jesus is going to raise a dead man to life. A dead man. Somebody that the maggots have got to already. Jesus is going to raise to life. Who can do that? God. Who else? No one. All of these things prove that Jesus is who he claims to be. That he is one with the Father. That he is the Son of God. Now, these folks don't believe his word, at least not all of them. In fact, the crowd gathered around him in the immediate context still wants to kill him, and Jesus has to pull one of his escapes. I don't know how he does this, because the scriptures contain several of these where somebody's about to try to kill him, and he just kind of walks through the crowd. Like, how did he get, how did he get loose? I don't know. But among the miraculous things Jesus did was that. He walked through a mob that wants him dead and have no one touch him. Because it's not the right time yet. There's going to be a mob that will surround Jesus and Jesus will go to his death, but it isn't this day. And so he goes back to the area where John was baptizing on the other side of the Jordan and many people do believe in him there, up near Galilee. And they see his works, and because they're part of his flock, they understand what that means. They, they had listened to John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus, and they said that is absolutely consistent with what John said. Therefore, he must be who he claims to be. He must be the Son of God, the Messiah. Now, as we look at this passage, there's some real obvious things we need to take to heart. First of all, Jesus is the Son of God. Not was, is. The Son of God. I know that's really basic truth. Really, really basic. Some of you are like, yeah, oh, that's profound, <laughs> right? No, it's not, but it is profoundly true. Jesus really is the Son of God. And we need to know that. And we need to know that he came and did these miracles alongside his teaching so that we would have proof of his identity. If a man comes along claiming to be God, don't believe him. Amen? But if a man comes along claiming to be God and is able to heal the blind, heal the crippled, cast out demons... Uh, take kids off their deathbed, raise the dead, walk on water, turn water into wine, to, to do an, ama an amazing series of miracles. And by the way, there are, I think, if, I think I have the numbers right on this, 53 days of Jesus' life recorded in the Gospels. Of those, Jesus does miracles on 43 days. This is an amazing man. But he's not just a man. He's the son of God. And 
If all these things are true, then he is worth following for a lifetime and beyond. Amen? And since Jesus is the Son of God, it's absolutely vital that we recognize him as such and do whatever is necessary to follow him forever. Whatever is necessary. And so if you are a person who has never believed in Jesus Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. It's, it is a simple process, but it will cost you everything. Because it will cost you trading in your life for his. And what you do is you come to Jesus and you say to him, Jesus, I have made a train wreck of my life. And I am putting my trust in you right now. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you were raised from the dead. And I want to receive the new life that you promise. And then I will live the rest of my life as a thank you to you for what you've done for me. That's all that it is. But on the backside of that commitment to follow Jesus is a real serious change of life. He, he will come in and he will change you from the inside out. It's free to receive, but it's very costly. But if you want that, it's yours. If you want it, it's yours. And on top of that, because Jesus is the Son of God, he saves completely. Completely. Every part of you. There is great comfort in this text. I mean, amazing comfort in this text. I love verses 27 to 31. When we put our trust in Jesus, we become part of his flock. We become one of his sheep. And we receive eternal life and we will never perish and we can never be taken out of his hand and the Father also holds on to us and we can never be taken out of his hand either. He saves us completely. And by the way, nothing, nothing in all creation, can ever take us out of membership in Jesus' flock. Not my sins, not my circumstances, not an angel, not a demon, not death itself can take me away from Jesus. Jesus is the victor over all those things. Over all of them. And so we are kept secure in Jesus' sheepfold, and Jesus and the Father together hold us doubly secure. Men and women, if you came today and you're, you're thinking, oh, it's raining, it's colder than I want it to be, I wanted 85 and sunshine and it's kind of still wet and not that warm, can I give you some encouragement today? If you came today and you were thinking, man, this has been a hard week 
Maybe for some of you, it's been the worst week of your life. Can I give you some encouragement just, just today? Encouragement that you can, you can look at every single day? I got nothing better than this. If you belong to Jesus, he gives you eternal life, and you will never perish. And no one can take you out of his hand. And his Father who has given you to him is greater than all things in creation. And you cannot be taken out of his hand either. You will be with the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for the encouragement of your word. We thank you that Jesus doesn't simply ask us to take his identity as the Son of God on faith, but he does miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, things that only God can do to prove to us that he is who he claims to be, that he is your Son sent into the world to save sinners. And Father, we are so grateful and thankful and in awe of the fact that you sent Jesus into the world to die and rise to save the likes of us. And that we can never be taken away from you. That we belong to you and you hold us in your inexorable grip for all eternity and you will never let us go. Father, we are so thankful. We give you praise and we offer our lives to you in thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.